Good morning. Uh, my name is Catherine, and I'm an alcoholic. Wow, it's, I haven't stood up to do this like on a podium. I feel so, oh my gosh. Um, and as each um, person read, my heart rate started going higher and higher and higher. So um, just to so, sort of ground things for myself, um, you know, I, a wise woman told me in my first year of recovery when someone asked me to tell my story, she said, well, you know, Catherine, it really doesn't matter what you say. She said, because if no one else needs to hear it, you do. And um, that the reality is I only have my experience, strength, and hope. And that is my greatest gift in recovery today is because when I get to share with you, um, our lives are touched in some way with each other. And so I can trust my higher power to do what needs to happen. And so, um, and my story is my story. It's not right or wrong. It's not textbook. It's just me. So. Um, Basically, you know, I know to tell um, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. Just a couple of disclaimers. I do talk about my family a little bit um, because that is part of who I am. But I just want to say that I truly believe that um, my parents gave me everything you could want in life. And what I mean by that is, as you hear my story, you'll see there as all of us have difficult things that happen in our lives, but I realized at one point that my parents had given me everything that can make you successful in a world that you never know what the world is going to be. Um, and that is a work ethic, um, a belief in a higher power, uh, a belief in a framework to make decisions outside of myself, and um, a heart for service. Those were things that were drilled into me my whole life, and that was just what was expected of you. And when everything became really difficult in my life at multiple junctures, I realized that that was all they could have really given me that was going to help me through the toughest times of my life. Um, would I have liked more? Yes. Would I have, you know, maybe benefited from some things? Maybe. But I truly believe that God is giving me everything I need through other people um, and that I'm very grateful today. So I just want to put that disclaimer because um, I believe that they did the very best that they could given what they had. Um, so my sobriety date is uh, November 26, 2000, and I'm so grateful that it was 2000 because I don't have to do any math. <laughs> I, <laughs> I can just look at the calendar and say, oh yeah, okay, how many years? Um, because as the years go on, sometimes this memory is not very good, so the, the 2000 makes it really easy. Um, so I basically, I grew up in a family that there were seven children. And so, yes, we were Catholic. People always, you know, like, oh, you must have been Catholic. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and we're pretty much stair steps. And I'm the youngest, but I'm not the baby. And the reason why I say that is because anybody who comes from a family that you know sometimes when alcoholism is part of that family, um, you know, you take on roles that you wouldn't normally take on. And my brother that's two up from me is actually, everyone thinks he's the baby. So he has all of those wonderful qualities and traits and things, and we all still baby him today. Um, but uh, my two oldest sisters were gone and married by the time I was uh, eight or nine. So I basically became sort of the woman of the house. And so that really changed the dynamic of what my role was in the, in the family. And the other thing you know about large families is that, you know, one good thing for the parents is the kids start to take care of themselves. Um, good or bad, that's just sort of the way it is. Uh, well, in my family, um, and the other thing with a big family is there's a, a sense of 
um, cohesiveness that you may not get along with one another, but no one else is going to mess with your family, you know. And we, um, when I was little, we lived in a neighborhood that had other Catholic families, and they had large families too. And there was a, always rivalry <laughs> amongst the big families. And um, I laugh at that. It's almost like we were gangs, you know. Um, and I don't know. It was just really funny. And I never forget this. Uh, one of our neighbors, she um, tried to get us all to come together because we were having mud fights, of all things. And um, she was like, oh, come over. And she started, she fed us tiger's milk. And we'll never forget that. Like, what was that about? I don't know. But um, she was trying to somehow get us all to get along. Um, but I do find today that when I meet a fellow Catholic, we all seem to get along because we sort of share some of those same, you know, some of those same traits. Um, I am very grateful for my family, though, because I think growing up in a large family, you learn a lot about life, um, whether you want to or not. Um, my family was... Um, my mother uh, was an alcoholic, and um, she was a person who had a big imagination. And she always had dinner on the table. She, the house was always clean. Um, so to the outside world, everything looked fine. My dad went to work every day. So to the rest of the world, you know, when I was growing up, that's what was important. Um, and so all the other stuff... Uh, was where the real deal happened for this person. Um, my mother, because she was an alcoholic, um, as we all can relate, you know, she wasn't always present. And so my brothers, because they were closer in age to me, they became what I wanted to be in my life. And because my dad traveled a lot, my brothers began to use and um, deal drugs and steal the alcohol from my mom at a very young age and they were probably 13 14 when they were doing it and I was younger than them so I was exposed to that at a very young age even though we went to church every Sunday we still went to school all this insanity was going on in our house and um, my dad would come in from out of town and I mean the house would be a disaster even though the food was on the table and the house was clean the kids were out of control and try to imagine seven kids and they're all high <laughs> and you know it, it, how insane that is I mean I have a 15 year old and a 12 year old I cannot imagine what it would be like for them to be uh, drunk and high I mean it, it just baffles me um, I'm grateful at this point that they haven't been exposed it just pushes it off a few years but that's okay um, you know because it just gives them a little bit more of a chance to um, develop uh, but for this alcoholic I thought that the most important thing was to be able to drink um, like a guy and to handle my liquor because I didn't care what my peers thought about me I cared about what my brothers thought about me and because I was the youngest they didn't want me around and so I was trying to do everything I could to be what they were so that they would accept me. Um, one way that they would accept me is that on anybody who's Catholic knows that Saturday night they have mass. So my, um, because one of my brothers could drive, they would be like, my parents like, yeah, okay, you can go to Saturday night live, I mean, Saturday night mass and Saturday night live. <laughs> Same thing, um, as long as you take your sister. Well, what they would do is we would drive to the church they would send me up to run up and get the bulletin for proof that we had been there. Yeah. And then they would take me, you know, I was like 
12, and they, we would go to good old days, um, if anyone is from Atlanta, um, on Roswell Road, and the drinking age at that time was 18. And I, we would all go to good old days and drink pitchers of beer. <laughs> and nobody batted an eye that I was sitting there drinking. So I thought this was normal. And in fact, the way I thought about alcohol was the crazier the better, because if you think about it, a bunch of teenagers getting together, getting high like that, it's the stories. So you drank to blackout, you, you partied to blackout. It, so I never had that social drinking parameters around it. And, you know, and as I grew up, you know, other kids would be going to rehab and we'd be like, what's wrong with you? You got caught, you know? So the mentality was, is you were stupid if you got caught and you were stupid if you couldn't hold your liquor. And I mean, that's crazy. And that was the mentality, but I had to separate it out. Um, I went to a, a high school that my parents were able to get me into because my brothers had such a bad reputation um, for dealing um, that they were afraid to send me to that high school. And so, um, in fact, some of my teachers were like, you know, she really can do more. And they helped me get into a, a school that really saved my life. Um, it was a private school that I got a scholarship to. And um, had I not done that, I don't think I would be alive today because I would have continued um, to probably have my whole life be that. But because of the school I was in, I couldn't do those things there. So I was the good student by day and then the athlete by afternoon. And then in the evening weekends, I was the party girl. And I had three groups of people that I was with and none of them could mix. And if any of them mixed, then I had to eliminate either that person or that group from my life. And that was the story of my life for many years because it was like, well, you can't know this person or that person. Oh my gosh, you'll know. Whatever they were gonna know, I don't know. <laughs> but it was like I felt this strong sense that you had to keep everything separate. And I mean, I still think of stories sometimes and I wonder, you know, wow. Um, if you're from Georgia, you know, they used to have a raft race at the Chattahoochee River. And I was at that raft race the last year that they had it. And um, I was probably 14 years old. And it was probably 1978, 79, something like that. And, um, well, I had to have been older than that. But anyways, it was around that time frame. Uh, and so we're there drinking white lightning out of mason jars. And, you know, people are just crazy on the river. So after the raft race, um, they were interviewing people for the news. And we're like, oh, yeah, over here, over here, over here. And not thinking, so drunk, and just saying, yeah, we come to the raft race to get drunk and watch the people. So this is on the news. And at that time, <laughs> how many channels were there? There was two, five, 11, and then you had your UHS channels, 17 and 36 and 46. So, you know, people watched the news and um, it was on the six o'clock, the 10 o'clock and some other time. Fortunately, my parents didn't see it. And, um, but the horror of it was, was that I hadn't put two and two together. That's how, that's how 
um, screwed up my thinking was. I didn't think about anything when I was drinking, but at the moment. And so the next um, day, I get a call from one of my brother's friends and said, oh yeah, I saw you on the news. And I was like, what? It was like I hadn't even thought that this was going to be on the news. I mean, what was I thinking? I wasn't. And so then, then I started getting afraid. You know, almost like that blackout, what did I do? Because I don't even remember what I said. I was, I was a blackout drinker, but I was also a brownout drinker. If you know what that is, you, you, you black out for a while, but then you wake up and you're maybe with some other people and you don't know how you got there um, and you're still using and you're like, oh my gosh, okay, what's going on around me? I, I sort of was that brownout drinker. And uh, so I really don't know what happened. And so the, I started getting really scared. And uh, I went to school on Monday and I was at a Catholic high school. And uh, I should have been expelled for this. Um, and I had a teacher come up to me and say, hey, you look great in a bikini. And I was like, oh my gosh, who knows? Who else knows? For weeks, I was terrified, just terrified. Am I gonna get caught? Am, am I gonna be you know, expelled? What's gonna happen to me? And I just became so paranoid that of course I had to keep drinking you know, um, to get rid of that fear. Um, and so I, that continued throughout my life. One thing that I think is fascinating is I was telling someone that story the other day and there was a, um, I forgot that my boyfriend at the time was with me. And I always think to myself, oh my God, I don't even know what happened to him. He wasn't, you know, he didn't come home with us. And I'm thinking, what happened? You know, I still don't know to this day. Um, maybe at my next reunion, I'll have to ask him, or maybe not. <laughs> uh, so anyways, um, I grew up in a family that was also very extroverted. And um, if you know it, that's very social, but you also just, the more the merrier and the, the bigger. Um, and it took me about 10 years in sobriety to find out that I'm an introvert. <laughs> I'm a people person and I like to talk to people, but I actually prefer a lot of alone time um, just to process and, and things like that. And if I don't get that time, I get really anxious. And so for to grow up in a house of nine people um, created a lot of angst for me that I didn't, didn't understand. I just didn't understand. And I didn't have anybody to look to or talk to about it um, because you didn't talk about things in my family. What we talked about was movies. We quoted movies. I thought that was normal speak for people. Um, and I grew up thinking that everybody watched uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail and that you could quote this movie and people would know what you were talking about. People <laughs> nodded politely, but I realized as years went on and into sobriety that that wasn't normal. <laughs> but I didn't know that, you know, because that's what I grew up with. And, and what that meant for me was I did not learn how to interact with others. And I never learned how to have a normal conversation. And so when I wasn't drinking, I was very quiet and afraid. And when I drank, which people liked me to drink, I became outrageous, you know, and funny and all the things that I thought I was supposed to be. And um, so there was always this dilemma within myself that I should be this one way, but I'm not. So I, I never could just accept who I was. Uh, and that was a, a, a dilemma that I had. And even early in sobriety didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be that way. And 
um, today I do, and I still think it's funny that you know it took me till I was age 45 to um, figure out that I was an introvert. But um, but now I can honor that, and I don't think it's not about being shy. It's about honoring who I am and and how I was created. Um, so when I continued on to drink, and um, I was an athlete as well. I was a, a runner, and I, it was very important to me. It was a, my identity. It was the only thing that I had that was mine. No one else in my family did it, um, and it was my thing. And so it was like my comfort. And it became a huge part of my identity. And when I was in college, I actually ran in college as well. And my boyfriend at the time called me a summer drinker because I could compartmentalize my life to the point where during season I didn't use at all because I was completely insane with the running. You know, we, I mean, because we, we, it was all or nothing. And the drinking couldn't fit in, but the way we were running and exercising, it was completely insane as well. You know, your whole life was consumed by it. What you ate, what you drank, when you slept, you know, how many miles you did, how much weight you did, you know. So it was just as obsessive as the drinking. But as soon as season ended, you know, I drank just as hard as I played and, and did that sport. And um, so they called me the summer drinker. And, uh, and so that was really the joke. But the funny thing is, you know, people would always say, don't you do the peach tree? And I was like, no, that's my drinking month, you know? <laughs> you know, but I never, you know, and I never really understood, you know, and they just didn't understand, you know, that you're a runner, you should do the peach tree. And I was like, no, because, you know, I, it's 4th of July, I gotta be drinking that weekend, you know? Um, so, you know, I realized in college too, I began to drink even heavier. And I mean, I would have up to 25, 30 drinks. And I mean, I'm a big gal, but still, that's a lot of alcohol. And I had a lot of alcohol poisoning, um, but I never went to any hospital. Um, I'm surprised today that I'm alive uh, because of the level of drinking that I did at that time. When I was um, 20 years old, my dad died. Um, and that was actually a big relief for me because um, I began to be open to the fact that because he was uh, a very abusive man on the same side he was very violent and um, he abused all of us in multiple ways so I won't go into detail but every way imaginable so I had a lot of work ahead of me to um, deal with with that um, that didn't make me an alcoholic <laughs> I'm an alcoholic because I'm an alcoholic you know I believe I was born an alcoholic and it was just I had access to it at a young age that was it, you know, it, 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 it would have been whenever. And I'm grateful today that I'm an alcoholic because this is the only place where people understand me and it's okay to be an introvert. <laughs> it's okay to be who I am. And I don't have to do it perfect. I don't even have to do it well. I just have to suit up and show up and you guys accept me. And this is, this is my family, you know, AA is my family today. And, you know, thank God I was from a large family because I like having a large family and AA is really large. Um, so anyway, so as I got into my 20s and got into my career, I thought to myself, well, you know, I really need to taper back a little bit because I don't think it's really a good idea to be using quite like that, especially because I was working in worksite wellness, <laughs> trying to, you know, convince people to take good care of themselves. And we did these health risk appraisals where 
um, people would take these quizzes. And we had a computerized program that was a box. It wasn't an actual computer, but it was a computer box that we had. So, because the data was, you know, we didn't have the technology like we did today. And I remember taking that and, and taking it and try to answer it different so it didn't come up that I had a drinking problem. <laughs> because I didn't understand, because, you know, the doctor said you could have a drink a day, maybe two. So I'm like, that's at least seven. So if I put on there I had seven, then it says I might have a drinking problem. And I'm like, well, shoot, you know, I, that's crazy. That's not very much. I mean, I literally was going through this mental gymnastics about debating the science of the drinking. You know, I mean, that's, that's crazy. Only an alcoholic would do that. So I didn't drink every day at that point. I was like, you know what, I need to kind of keep it so I can get to work and do my work and, you know, all of that. And so I kind of became more of the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday during the day just because, you know, to help from the night before or the three-day drunk that I had been on you know, that feeling of, oh my God, I can't not drink because you're shaking and you're, so you have to drink. Um, and I heard on the news the other day, they said, oh, the hair that bit the dog doesn't work for hangovers. And I'm like, well, they haven't talked to an alcoholic because it wasn't that I wanted the hangover to go away. I wanted the shakes to go away. I wanted all that other stuff to go away. Um, and it just sort of eased it for me. And, and, I, and only an alcoholic, I think, would understand what that really does for you. So I decided when I got to be in my late 20s that, you know, now I think I live in a neighborhood. I had my first house and I was like, I think I'll become a social drinker now. <laughs> and I always think that's funny because who decides to be a social drinker at, you know, 30? You know, like most people want to be a social drinker and then they can't. And, you know, that's the stories I hear. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try. What do social drinkers do? So then I decided that, well, I guess social drinkers and I'm a girl. Um, should drink wine. <laughs> so I started to drink wine and uh, I would try to, you know, sip it and all and, you know, in a nice glass and all of those kind of things. And so what I would do is I would go through all the wine and then I was like, well, okay, what do I do? There's no more wine because no one else drank like me. So I would take beer or whatever was around the house and pour it in that wine glass <laughs> as if I were drinking wine. I mean, this is insane. Um, but, you know, the minute I drank, the thing was, the thing that was different about me and others was what happened to me when I put that alcohol in my system. I honestly never knew what was going to happen. I didn't know if I was going to have one. I didn't know if I was going to have 20. I didn't know if I was going to be drunk for days. I honestly never knew. Um, I did not know that, um, that that wasn't normal. Because of the family I grew up in, I had those images ingrained in me that this is what normal was. And so um, as I got older and I started to realize that maybe my childhood affected me a little bit and I need a little help. Um, I started to use even more heavily. I started in counseling to deal with the reality of my life. And the pain was so great that I had to continue to use um, because there was no relief. I mean, it was good. I needed the counseling, and, and I'm not trying to discount counseling. I needed it, and it's, you know, it's an outside help that sometimes we need. So you know, if you need it, you need it. But for this alcoholic, it could only help so much because I needed a program of action, and I needed a program like this, but I wasn't ready. So I do think that counseling got me ready. Um, my, I remember telling one of my counselors that I was actually concerned 
about my drinking. And um, she said, well, you know, if you're worried about your drinking, then you're, you're most likely not an alcoholic because they don't worry about it. <laughs> and, you know, years later, I told her that she said that. She said, I did? I said, she goes, I'm so sorry. I said, you know what? It's all right because it wasn't time for me. I needed every one of those drinks. And honestly, I think that as I continued, because I had had other situations, I honestly, I had post-traumatic stress syndrome. And um, it was at a time where they didn't understand that that happened for other reasons. And so the, when I was younger, I could dissociate mentally. As I got older, the blackouts were the only way for me to dissociate anymore from the horror. And so um, that's what drinking did for me. So I believe, honestly, that the drinking saved my life. Because had I had to experience all of that without the help, because I, there wasn't help at the time, um, it's the only thing that kept me from doing something or just completely being put in a mental institution. And I'm really grateful to alcohol for that. Um, because I, I believe it helped me survive um, for a few more years. Uh, because there was nothing that could take that pain away. Because I didn't understand it, and I would have four or five day panic attacks, and I would just play solitaire for hours and hours, or I'd go walk for hours and hours. And I had a gentleman that was in my life at that time, and I know I wreaked havoc in his life, but he thought he could help me. <laughs> and he was the only person that knew what was going on with me. And when I came into the program, I was so terrified that there was, I was really mentally ill and that they were going to put me in a hospital and I would never know um, reality again. I really was afraid. And when I came in and you told me I was just an alcoholic, I was like, thank God, you know, that that's all I was. I mean, I, I know I had mental stuff, but, but, you know, at least with alcoholism, there's a solution, you know. And it wasn't like I was going to get sober and then I was just going to be crazy. You know, there was an actual solution. Um, so as, as time went on, the drinking, of course, escalated. And, um, and it became a point where I could no longer answer the door. I wouldn't answer the phone. I was so terrified um, because I really was a, a fearful person. And I was paranoid. And so I would drink at home. I could no longer drink with other people. I would just drink at home. And so um, I remember trying to throw away the wine opener because then um, I couldn't open the bottles of wine in the house. And I remember one time having to drive up to Publix to get a wine opener and realizing when I got it there how drunk I was because I couldn't talk. And I did, you know, when you're by yourself and you're drinking, I don't know, I didn't realize how screwed up I was. And when I tried to interact with another human being, um, it was very, very difficult and it scared me. It scared me. Um, so in the very end, um, I basically came into AA through Al-Anon. Um, my mother had been in recovery for AA for a number of years and had beat it into me that, you know, but she was worried about my brother. She didn't think anything about anybody else but my brother. And so she would talk about blackouts and all that, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's me, that's me. So for a long time, I, I feared I was an alcoholic, and I think I knew I was. Um, but I didn't want, because I had been to some AA meetings with my mom to give her chips, I didn't want to do these things. <laughs> uh, you know, there was no way I was going to do an inventory and tell anybody else 
all of that stuff. There was no way. And I was not making amends. I wouldn't do any of that. So, you know, and then everybody in AA, you know, I mean, <laughs> was those people because they would say, oh, your mother's a saint. And, you know, this other person that I knew that had try, actually kidnapped me and tried to kill me said, they said, he's a saint. And it was kind of like, uh, I don't know, you know. <laughs> so I kind of was like, well, I don't know. So I thought, well, if that's the case and I didn't do those things, what are they going to think of me, you know? So I just kind of was like this, but it really was me not being ready. But I, I never forget going to my first Al-Anon meeting because my mom had relapsed. And to see someone relapse after 18 years is horrifying. It's horrifying. Um, she was a very functional person in society and very much did a lot of community work and all of this kind of stuff, a go-getter. And to see her one day call me up and say, well, you know, the lung doctor told me I'd breathe better if I drank some bourbon and your aunt agrees. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, oh my God, who is this woman? I couldn't believe. I mean, she was completely insane. And so um, this was the first time she went into detox and she came out talking like a sailor. And I'm telling you, my mother never cussed in her life. And here she was, you know, just going off. And I was like, who is this woman? And they had family night and we didn't do that in, when she first got sober. So um, I went and they were explaining the disease of alcoholism and I was like, Either I am today or I will be tomorrow, but I'm going to go to Al-Anon to get help for me. So I went to Al-Anon, and my first Al-Anon meeting, it was so funny, the Al-Anon meeting didn't exist anymore. So the AA folk were like, oh, well, come into our meeting. It's fine. So my first Al-Anon meeting was actually an AA meeting. <laughs> and I'll never forget because I was, I mean, I think that's ironic. Not really. Um, <laughs> there's no coincidence that that was my first Al-Anon meeting. Well, I went, started going to Al-Anon, and I, you know, if, if you know Al-Anons, because I'm a double winner, and I love Al-Anon, don't get me wrong, but they don't go to meetings like we do. <laughs> they don't work their program like we do, because it's not life and death for them. And um, so I was going to meetings like we go to meetings. I was trying to find one every single day. But every time we read the steps, if you've been to an Al-Anon meeting, they basically read the same steps. But every time they read them, I thought, oh, Okay, I've gotten away with it. This is the easier, softer way. I don't have to admit I'm an alcoholic, but I'm going to get better, you know? Um, and of course, that lasted maybe a month. And then I started drinking, and then I was drinking at um, Al Anon meetings. I mean, you know, how insane <laughs> is that, you know? And so um, I, I just. I just remember my very last drunk was I had tried to stop drinking and we went out to dinner with some other people and they were um, they're the kind of couples that split the bill no matter what and the food didn't come and the food didn't come and they were drinking bottles and bottles of wine and the next thing I knew I was like forget this if I'm paying for all of this so I started chugging wine down and, um, and then I was off the, for the races for about three days. Um, I woke up about three days later and I was, I was just like, I had that shakes. It was the middle of the night and I couldn't drink. I couldn't not drink. And it was those four horsemen right there. And I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And so I um, called someone from Al-Anon and I said, I really think I'm mentally ill. I think they're gonna lock me up. I don't know what to do. She said, well, maybe you should consider going to AA. And um, we talked about it. She was very kind and, and loving. She had had actually 35 years in Al-Anon. 
Um, some of the people I know in Al-Anon have a lot of years because they work a program. And I'm very grateful to those Al-Anons because they gave me enough trust to walk into these rooms. If it hadn't been for them, I could not have done this because I was terrified. I really was terrified. In fact, when we started, when I first started coming in and you would hear the, um, the promises and fear of people, and I was like, well, I'm not afraid of people. But as the year went on <laughs> of my first year of sobriety, I realized every week how much more fearful and fearful of people I, I actually am. And I still can be if I'm in my own self, you know. Um, when I'm turning it over to my higher power, I, I can deal with people. Um, but I do still get afraid of big social situations, like standing up here and talking to you, um, is, is, is a challenge. But I know that with my higher power, I can do whatever he wants me to do. Um, so when I first came into AA, I was just a disaster. Um, you know, they say, don't make any major changes in your first year. Well, my husband at the time, did not want to be married anymore and he quit his job and I wasn't working at the time and I found out three weeks into the program that I was pregnant and I was like oh my gosh what do I do first thing I did because I'd been going to AA two three times a day at that point was I heard what you guys told me when all else fails go to a meeting don't drink don't think go to a meeting so I went to a meeting and it was a Thursday night, and I'll never forget, um, they, they read the, um, I think they changed the name of the story, but it's acceptance is the answer to all our key, uh, you know, all over. And so that was page 449, but I think it's 317 now or 417 um, in the big book, but that, you know, acceptance. And I realized at that moment that I had gone through three years of fertility treatment to have my first daughter. <laughs> and here I was blessed to have a child inside of me I was sober, and the person sitting next to me, I knew pretty well, she could not have children at all. Her tubes were gone, so she could not have children, and she had to adopt. And the person leading the meeting was talking about this, and it all hit me at that moment that, you know, this is God's plan for me right now. I, I you know, and so I just stayed in the middle of AA for that year. Um, as you can imagine, you know, going through all of that and, um, was very difficult, so I just didn't drink, and I went to meetings. They told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I probably went to probably 300, because I didn't know how to live. I didn't know how to go to the grocery store. I didn't know how to do anything, because I'd done everything drunk. I didn't know how to live. So you guys had to teach me, and I had to learn to go to the grocery store and go the other way in the store, so I wouldn't think about drinking. You know, I had to do a lot of those practical things. Um, I had to call my sponsor every day. I had to talk to other women in the program. And I shared in meetings. You know, a lot of people don't think newcomers should share, but if I didn't share, I would have died. I would have died. Um, and I'm so grateful that the, the people with a lot of time came around me and told me, stick with the winners. You know, they tell me you're right where you're supposed to be. And that always gave me comfort because as hard as it was, I knew if I was right where I was supposed to be, I was heading in the right direction. Because my life had been so complicated, I thought, I don't care if it gets better, I just want it to be different. I don't want this insanity over and over and over again, and feeling like I have no control whatsoever. It was a horrible, horrible feeling. 
And when the obsession to drink was lifted, what a miracle. What an absolute miracle. I mean, I remember sitting in the back of a meeting one day when I realized that the obsession had lifted. For some people, it happens right away. For me, it was 30 days. Um, now, I can tell you, when I picked up my first white chip, I did get a little that, oh, yay feeling. And I drove home, and I was so excited. I'm like, what should I do? And I thought, well, I should go have a drink. And I'm like, that's insane. <laughs> you know? I mean, but that's the disease. That's the disease. And, uh, you know, that first year of sobriety, I have to tell you, was really tough. Um, it was tough just because of getting sober, but then all the changes in my life. But um, as you can imagine, I always call, when people do the nine-month chip, I always do this to myself because I was in the hospital, um, and my group at the time uh, was Alpharetta, and they brought me my chip in the hospital. But what I have to tell you that happened um, when I was probably, it was eight months sober, um, I started getting very, very sick um, in my uh, uh, pregnancy. Um, I ended up in congestive heart failure, um, toxemia, and all my organs were shutting down and I was dying. Um, and I'm so grateful. Um, my husband abandoned me in the hospital and I didn't know that for many years because AA was there. I was never alone. Women from AA spent the night with me. Um, I had one child at home. When I had Abby, she went home and I stayed in the hospital for three weeks. And it was the most powerful, wonderful three weeks of my life because I'd never felt so loved and so close to my higher power than I did during those three weeks. And it changed my life forever because I had never, ever had anybody love me like that. And I had never, ever had anybody be there for me like that. Um, my family had come up to visit, and I, I'm not mad at them. They just couldn't do it. They just couldn't do it. And um, they're lovely people. I mean, they really are. I mean, we have a lot of fun together, and we still get together and talk about movies. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but that only takes you so far in life, you know? Like, I wouldn't call them if I needed something, but I would call you because I know you would help me or you know someone else who could help me. And the same goes. But I had to be shown. I had to be shown what that looks like. You know, and my kids, it was so funny, they went to AA meetings for so long, they just think it's normal. And in fact, it was just last year, my 12-year-old my asked me, she goes, so does that mean you have a drinking problem? <laughs> <laughs> because her perspective of AA is all these wonderful people, you know? And, you know, AA has brought to me an amazing life, you know? I learned so much, and during the, after I had, you know, all the illness, um, when, you, when you have toxemia like that, it breaks down all your muscles and all your liver and everything. So all the years of training probably saved me, um, but my body was never the same. And so it took a long time, and it took about five years to fully physically recover, um, but it also took about five years for me to fully get back into my career as well. And that's important to, to state because I was not in any mental state or physical state to get back fully um, at what I was able to do. And I was afraid. I was afraid. But when it was time, 
you know, I, I, I love my career. I work in public health, and I had the opportunity to reach out and start working in the field again. And I'm so grateful for that because I get to work with the coolest, smartest people, <laughs> and they don't really get along with other people, but it's kind of like AA, you know? I mean, I work with a lot of epidemiologists, and I kind of think of them as another group of you know, drunks because amongst themselves they have their own language and amongst us we have our own language. And, um, and I'm really grateful for that because today I can participate and be part of life. And when I'm participating, I know that I'm okay, you know. And when I share my experience, strength, and hope with someone, it's funny, it doesn't happen because I make it happen. It happens naturally. You know, you'll be talking to someone just sharing and all of a sudden they look at you and they're like, that really helped me. I never thought about that. And they take something from that piece of what you thought was the most painful part of your life now becomes something that can help somebody. You know, and when I was growing up, um, the Moody Blues, if anyone's a Moody Blues fan, um, they were, Justin Hayward's music saved me through those tumultuous years in my home because they were painful, I'm not gonna kid you. Um, and I listened to that music, and there was one song, Question of Balance, where he says, you know, I'm looking for a miracle in my life. And um, I cried and cried, and I would go to concerts, and I even met him, and I cried and cried and cried. And um, when I got sober, I stopped listening to it, because I was like, I just can't go there anymore. Well, this year, I, um, I went to see Justin Hayward um, at the Roxy, or well, I think it's the Buckhead Theater now, I don't know what, it's changed names so many times, and um, it was an acoustic set, and he, he, I didn't cry. And he played that song, and when he said, I'm looking for a miracle in my life, I was beaming, because I thought the miracle has happened. You know, I'm not looking for it, I was looking for it, but I have it today. And now, I, I mean, you come into my car and all I have is Moody Blues playing because I'm so excited that I actually can enjoy that today. And just real quick before I end, I was so fearful of uh, running a full marathon. And I have to tell you guys that I ran my first marathon last Sunday. And the cool thing is I did it with 30,000 other people. And, and the reason why I tell you that is because I realized that I no longer, even though I'm an introvert, want to walk through this journey alone. I want to walk through it with you. When I did that race, I walked through it with 30,000 other people. And I wasn't afraid, I wasn't anything. I was hurting, <laughs> but you know, but the good news, and I was sharing this with someone earlier, is that that was the first time I had done that, but it was the first time I could say I did something I'd never done, and it wasn't the first time doing it sober. I had never done that drinking. And so today, you know, I feel really good because I feel like, what else can I do? You know, what else have I been limiting myself by saying, I'll never do that? And because of AA, I can't wait to see what the next part of the journey is. So thanks for letting me share.